The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone, and um, also welcome to the people who are listening live stream around, including some Minnesota folks who had a hard time driving in today. And I want to thank Scott Jensen, too, for setting that all up and managing that. It's really a great uh, gift for the people who want to be part of the program, but for whatever reasons can't be here um, to participate directly. So maybe before um, I start talking about this particular depiction of the teachings of dependent co-arising, the wheel of life as it's called. Maybe you saw the email I sent out earlier today. Um, just check in about the meditation instructions. And uh, it's okay if that felt a bit challenging because it's nice for those of us who were here a little bit earlier because hopefully our minds settled during that initial sit at 7 o'clock so that we had more capacity maybe to just notice the activity of the body and the mind as a natural process like weather. Anybody feel like you had some moments when you could observe the wisdom in the mind, the awareness in the mind, could observe all the activity as a totality, right? Interdependent totality, not somebody observing something but just this activity. And in that totality of activity, sometimes got bound up and tight, and sometimes it felt relatively not tight, unbound. And in this sort of not personal way, learning happens. Wisdom grows in that environment. And that's the kind of wisdom we can trust. Like the kind of wisdom you think you've gained and you've got them, you're sort of locked in your box there. That's I've learned that from the, what do we say, the hard uh, knocks of life, hard school of life, hard knock school of life, whatever that old <laughs> phrase is. What is it? School of hard knocks. Of hard knocks. <laughs> you know, and it's sort of like, that's my knowledge. This is sort of, Something you hear sometimes in, in Buddhist circles, like people really feeling surprised by their wisdom, by the how much space, you know, that spacious perspective they have in a particular situation where they maybe expected they would have been reactive, but they're just more spacious and forgiving and patient and kind and understanding. So something developed, something grew, but it but it has that funny feeling of not being me that's wise or me that's equanimous. There's equanimity there, there's resilience there, but it doesn't feel like I own it. That's the kind of wisdom we develop. Now you can, we can, you know, the ordinary mind, neurotic mind can personalize anything, claim anything, but we don't have to. We can just appreciate it as something beautiful. And it doesn't it isn't that sort of weird pride like 
did you notice? You know, it's just like, wow, I'm really appreciative of that capacity that I'm noticing that's manifesting in my life in this way. So any comments or questions about the instructions for the meditation tonight? Because you'll see, you know, as we already, but especially as we kind of dig in, all the maps, because they depend on language, all the ways the Buddha articulated the mind, talked about the mind, right? He's using concepts. This this particular depiction is a little bit more artistic than some, but still they can kind of give the wrong impression, you know, that it's like we're studying programming and we'll become great programmers and we'll make everything just right. Yeah, Tim. I bought the book um, recommended for this class. and Under the Bodhi tree? Yeah, that's right. And uh, he made it sound like the, the teaching was this arises and then that arises and this ceases and then this ceases. And it it was like, it seems almost like trivially, trivially true. And that's why it's kind of hard to follow, I find. The phrase that comes to mind is tautology. It's like, it's like so obvious that I don't even know why I'm <laughs> like studying or looking at it. So I think that's the main difficulty is something that's, it's like the most obvious thing um, like conceivable. Yeah. And that's that's the, the trouble. And so we're each going to have to find our own way to um, get what the Buddha is pointing to. Remember that, I think I mentioned the first night when Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, was saying to the Buddha, yeah, it's, it's great teaching. You know, I really see it. I really understand it. And the Buddha kind of scolded him or warned him, you know, no, this is subtle. But remember, subtle does not mean complex. Subtle means hard to see, right? And sometimes it's hard to see because it's so obvious. So that's why that that sense of totality, like when learning to look at the mind and body, which is just another way of saying me or my life or my experience, looking at it as a totality, not in a dualistic way. So then even the me that's trying to meditate and do it like Mark's telling me to do it, even that is part of that totality. That's part of that interdependent or interactive play of causes and conditions, like weather, right? So everything's included, everything is participating. Because like in weather, the shape of the land participates, right? It affects like what that is and the wind and what's on, you know, the trees and how dry or how saturated the the ground is. And it's it's all participating in how it all unfolds. And so like when we're using that instruction, you know, when there's when there's this supporting cause, there's that thing it supports, and when it's not there, then that thing it supports isn't there. And when this ceases, then that ceases. 
and when this arises, then that arises. So like that seems a little like, yeah, okay. <laughs> but we, we want it, the hard part is really learning to see through that lens, look at the mind and body, the present moment experience with that lens, how things are unfolding in that way. And like I've been trying to say, we're not trying to figure something out. We're trying to let that way of experiencing have its impact. It will have its impact. Just like our ordinary way of seeing, which is always in this kind of dualistic frame, with this dualistic frame, this is my experience, this is happening to me, that has an that makes an impression too right and that's exactly what the wheel of life or the teachings on dependent co-arising are really talking about is how there when this element is there or when this factor is there that we in buddhism sometimes call wrong view or self view self-centered view then something keeps in motion and that something that keeps in motion is the appearance of a stressed out person, <laughs> me, right? An anxious person, a person who's looking for relief. So when ignorance is there, when wrong view is there, when craving is there, then this whole mass of suffering is there. But without these key elements being there, then the whole mass of suffering is not there. And that's what we're beginning to see. It's sort of like, uh, you know, it's sort of this this understanding that's coming online. You know how it is sometimes when they do this in um, in films sometimes, where there's an image coming, but they're just like they start with just a few of the billions of pixels, right? There's just a few, but every second more and more of the image is sort of coming up, right? And so by training the mind to study our present moment experience in this way, this understanding is growing. The The image is getting clearer. But it can't be rushed because when we're rushing, we're not doing the, the training, right? We're not seeing the movement of the body and the mind as a natural process. I mentioned last week, for those who weren't here, that I'll just repeat briefly that, you know, as it's talked about, as the Buddha talked about it, and over the centuries people have talked about the Buddha's insight under the Bodhi tree, right? This sort of thing that now leads us here at this corner in Minneapolis to still be talking about this person 2,600 years ago and what he came to understand about his mind. But, you know, they talk about it in sort of a a mythological way almost now, but still helpful. So the first watch of the night, the Buddha, he was just observing his present moment experience like we do all the time. And the thing that really struck the mind as this is talked about, this first insight that arose, was that everything was moving. Right? So anicca change, changiness, right? It's like everything's in motion. Everything is a moving process. There's nothing static anywhere, whether we're 
observing sensation in the body, observing mental activity, observing sound, observing sight, nothing is static. Everything's in motion, coming and going, coming and going, one mind moment, conditioning the next, conditioning the next, one life, conditioning the next, whatever, however, whatever scale the mind is observing present moment experience, it's in motion, first insight. Second third of the night, that insight matured, and as it's described mythologically, you know, the Buddha came to understand that that changingness, that flow, that conditional unfolding is shaped by how the mind is relating. What we would in more ordinary terms say the skillfulness or unskillfulness of the mind or the presence of greed or the absence of greed, the presence of aversion and fear or the absence. That affects how the general shape of what's unfolding. Right? So like in mythological terms, it's like if my mind has been shaped by aversion, then when this life ends, I'll take rebirth conditioned by all that aversion. Right? The the next life will be conditioned or shaped by the aver- what aversion set in motion, right? In mythological terms. But even moment to moment, we see how that happens. It's more relevant, more useful moment to moment, right? If my mind is being governed by ill will or aversion or fear, you know, any of the different expressions of aversion, hatred, self-righteousness, it affects the world I experience, the world I live in, is colored by the impression that the fear or the anger has laid down on the mind that knows and the body that feels, right? So I'm affected by that. When there's no anger, then that's shaping how things unfold. So that's the second watch of the night. The Buddha really saw that things are motion. That's the first insight. The second insight is how I'm relating really changes how things unfold. It's not a random unfolding. I'm directly, the mind is directly participating by how it's relating. And even if I've been relating with a lot of anger, moment after moment after moment, in this moment, I could relate with forgiveness and it changes things. Which is really, you know, in a lot of religious traditions, there's this space for mercy or forgiveness, for healing, right? And it's so interesting, like uh, redemption. Because this is the thing, there's something about the underlying nature that... uh, it can be reformed, right? Because it's in a f- in a very real way, reality is being reconstructed in every moment. So I might be a hateful human being, a hateful human being, a hateful human being. A lot's getting laid down. There's going to be some left over, but now I'm relating in a different way. Even if, like uh, Gulimala, this character at the time of the Buddha, who was a mass murderer. And he became a follower of the Buddha, as the story goes. And uh, 
Well, there are some repercussions for having, according to the stories, killed 999 people. Um, in terms of like when he'd go get his food, people would curse at him and throw things at him, even though he was at that point an awakened being. But that mind, you know, the mind was seeing things as a totality and had learned not to relate to anything in a constricted way. To in a, yeah, not to relate with greed, with hate, with delusion. So, it, yeah, the things that were thrown at him would hit him and there would be pain. And maybe the words would land in a way, maybe that would be painful. But he didn't add anything to those ordinary, unavoidable, painful things that came his way. He didn't turn that physical pain, maybe even emotional pain, into a personal problem. And that's what that grows in our mind when we're observing in this way. And the last watch of the night is just really like, so once we, in the second insight, you know, it's really saying, oh yeah, greed, hatred, delusion, disconnection, not skillful, kindness, commitment to non-harming, knowing how to let go, knowing how to be generous, skillful right? Really getting that. And then the last watch of the night is like taking that second insight that there's skillful ways of relating and unskillful ways of relating to the nth degree, right? Because what's actually most skillful is to get out of the way of trying to be skillful. So at some point, when the mind really understands that hate is not helpful and kindness is helpful, just to give an example, then at some point, me trying to be kind and me trying not to be hateful is in the way. right? So that last insight of the night for the Buddha was just the maturing of that second insight. And it's really like, Instead of trying to be skillful and avoid being unskillful, the Buddha got out of the way. He abandoned abandoned framing the second insight in terms of a self, a person, an individual who's apart, who's trying to be skillful and trying to be unskillful. He matured out of that frame and saw everything as a natural process, right? He allowed it to be what it was, which is a natural process. So al- already part of the natural process was seeing that kindness is good and hate is not helpful, right? So that understanding was already part of the natural process. He didn't need to construct a person who's going to do something about that insight. That was clunky. That was stressful. So that's that deeper insight we sometimes in Buddhism call emptiness like taking the self-view out of the picture. And that's really what that teaching is all about. It's, it's helping us understand that we're, we're changing our sort of existential situation from I'm a human being, and as try as I might, I always end up suffering. I always end up you know, causing suffering, suffering myself. I don't want to... And 
we're learning, like, as frustrating as that is, that we use that frustration to be willing to try something out of the box. And that's why it's a hard practice. So I really encourage you, like when you sit, maybe not the whole sit, maybe use part of the sit in ways you've practiced before to really help settle the body and the mind down, calm the system down. But save some of the time in your formal sitting time or walking practice to do this more simple but challenging practice of seeing the totality of the mind and body, the activity of the mind and body, as a natural process. Take the practitioner out of the picture. Now you can't do that because then you're still the practitioner, trying to get the practitioner out of the picture, right? So the way we get the practitioner out of the picture is we learn to trust the totality of the activity of the mind and body. It's like we're relaxing into the weather, into the activity of the mind and body. And then you'll see, like in that, the weather's constantly in motion, and sometimes it feels really fierce and tight and difficult, the weather, the internal experience of the body-mind. Sometimes it's very light and free. And that, that endless, ceaseless changing is the learning. That's what allows for the learning. So we're not trying to avoid getting into tight spaces when we're sitting. Or we're not trying to always be in beautiful spaces. We're just letting it rip, so to speak. You know, we're just letting things unfold. We're getting out of the way. But like I said, it's not so easy to do that when we just have an ordinary state of consciousness. So if we're just coming from a busy day and we sit down and we tell ourselves that, okay, just let just let it rip. We're just going to sit there and worry for 30 minutes, you know, or plan for 30 minutes, or think about how stupid Buddhism is for 30 minutes, or whatever. It won't be productive. So settle down so there's some degree of calm, and with that calm is some degree, some proximity of wisdom, wisdom that knows that it's safe to just trust, to let things be. And then really work with that, sliver of insight, that sliver of understanding, really keep it in mind. So in a way, that's your meditation object. I mentioned this the first week about just the phrase natural process. But more than the concept, than your own direct intuitive sense that the totality of the present moment is to be trusted. The not being the doer, doing will happen, but the, the not being the doer, you know, is a, a way of practicing. Giving yourself permission to not be the doer, to not be the practitioner. So there's awareness and there's stuff being known. That's it. Yeah, John? Thank you. Um, so I was snowshoeing today and what you were talking about really um, opened up what happened. So I was, once in a while I would just stand still and I would think all of what I'm seeing is the result of all these causes and intentions and decisions. And 
it was very peaceful when I kind of had that frame of mind. But when you said um, um, not through a dualistic perspective, I realized that while I certainly didn't think all of that was mine in any way, but it was me seeing it. And when you said not the dualistic perspective, I, I realized, well, I was exactly just like that tree in front of me, the result of causes and conditions and 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 it really just my my chest kind of lit up when i when I had that kind of image yeah um, and I've never really i think saw myself as a natural object, and I think maybe I glimpsed it. So, uh, what I was that know. last thing you said, John? I think maybe I, I've never really seen myself as a natural object. I mean, I've tried, uh-huh. but um, and then you said something right after that. I glimpsed it. A glim- glimpse. Glimpsed it. it. Oh, got yeah. It. Okay. Um, it. That wow, I really am just like the weather and the tree and yeah. the, the snow. We don't realize how oppressive self-view is. We've been living with it forever. It's the tension or the oppressiveness of that dualistic or self-view has been so normalized that it doesn't stand out unless, until, it drops away momentarily. And then, you know, like uh, we've been walking around with a 40-pound backpack and we put it down, we really notice the difference until we pick it back up. You know, and then we notice that. And then that gets normalized again. So one way that John was sharing, it's like, and again, it's not that these ideas are right. It's that these ideas support the dropping of an oppressive idea the mind is clinging to, but we don't realize it. right? So these ideas that we're talking about have a particular effect of allowing the mind to drop ideas that aren't helping, that haven't been helping. So when we, like John was suggesting, and some of the readings uh, basically make this point, it's really from the discourses of the Buddha, that past causes lead to this present moment effect. So this moment, what we're seeing right now, what we're hearing, what we're feeling in the body, any emotional feeling in the heart, whatever it's like for us right now is that movement from past causes to present effect. So this isn't me. This is my sort of restating what John said. This experience that I'm experiencing isn't so much me, but the very natural present moment effect of past causes. And I don't have to know all those past causes. That would be, one, impossible, and two, not necessary. I just need to know the relationship. Like I need to know that what this is is a beautiful and perfect expression of past causes. Not me, not Mark, but just a natural, like when there's all of that, past causes, then there's this present effect. If there weren't those past causes, this moment that I'm experiencing wouldn't be this. Right? So that's another thing you can play with. And then 
you know, then you could see this moment as the present moment cause, right? And how we're relating is the future effect. What I'm doing with this, how I'm relating to this, like I was talking about a few minutes ago, I'm relating, because we can observe that, like we're sitting in meditation, this is the present moment um, cause, right? Because I'm sitting, the body feels like this, pain in the knee, I don't like the pain in the knee, right? Future effects. So present moment cause, future effects. So past causes, present, emo- present moment effect, present moment, future effect, right? Present moment causes, future effect, yeah. And it, again, just to finish that up, so what we're doing is we're interrupting self-view. Thanks, Mark. So... Um there are a couple analogies about weather, and I, I really like that because I like to think that, um, or I should say that it seems that the self um, is kind of condensing in the mind. Uh, and and I, I've been using that kind of visual sense with this teaching of dependent origination that the self condenses through this process. And... Um, what I was working with during the meditation was uh, concentrating on my breath and really trying to penetrate the subtle sensations of the breath. And then when other formations would arise, I could, in the contrast of the subtle sensations of the breath, those that formation, that becoming and birth, the the condensing of it was very apparent in contrast to the subtle sensations and just the turning toward it and seeing it but not getting caught up in that process kind of dissolves it back and back into the atmosphere yeah um and it makes me think that in a way this condensing process is um is is like how we relate to the unfolding of nature across the dimension of time because this is how we're this is how we see time uh in this linear way because we're it's it's condensing our 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 vision of self and reality is condensing along the path of time anyway (laughs) i've lost myself at this point but (laughs) and it's really important because it oh it's a re- it can be a real trap because this stuff is truly, on a philosophical level, it's truly fascinating. So always remember, because it's like we like the mind, our minds, we like games, we like puzzles, we like figuring things out. There's a certain human joy. You watch children, right? We, there's a joy in learning and figuring things out and breaking puzzles, mastering these things. But we really want to keep the investigation very specific to crunch and release. Crunch and release. Holding and release. Suffering and release. That will really help. So when you find your mind, because I mean, there's a lot of energy and, and the, the kind of what feels like we're figuring things out. It's like we're mapping new territory and we like it. 
and uh, but it's it's endless. It's like when we're looking through the internet, you know, and then we see this page, and there's a link on that page to something else, and it's like. But if we actually kind of feel into that, it's stressful to be the one who's going to understand it all, right? Well, yeah, and I I do appreciate that. I know it sounded probably very convoluted, but I guess where it's bringing me to is kind of feeling the presence and power of the moment because that's where things feel much clearer. No, I thought your your early statement there was exactly right, and it's really promoting the, the importance of calm because when there's some calm, some stability of mind, then, like you said very well, you can really catch it early. You can really see the formation, like how self and perception and contact and reactivity and how the whole mass of suffering comes to be, right? And how that can perpetuate. Maybe that's what you're talking about in terms of how then time arises because there's a somebody who can who has time, you know, has a past, has a present, has a future. The whole world and the oppressiveness of that whole world then arises and then it can cease just as quickly as it arose. Not that it does. Yeah, and then we'll stop. You want to pass it back into the corner? <laughs> Any kind of glimpse of that, the freedom of experiencing things as they are, Dharma, the way it is, which is, you know, you know, if we believe our teachers, if we believe our own insights, it's a natural process. So there's, so that that the. Um, aftertaste of even little glimpses, let alone deeper insights, is it's really okay. But that doesn't mean that the world doesn't need our involvement or our families don't need our involvement. But it's still okay. And so it does have a, it is lightning, it is enlightening. Little glimpses and big gulps of this insight are enlightening. This practice delivers freedom. And this is what makes the, the teachings of the Buddha different from a lot of the ways that mindfulness is used now in a lot of more secular settings as a, a really effective uh, strategy for managing stress and managing neurotic, um, neurotic mind. So as long as we're going to have a neurotic mind, it's good to have some of these stress reduction techniques. But it's much better not to have a neurotic mind. And this is really about what that third insight, you know, so they divide the Buddha's sit under the Bodhi tree into those three insights. That third insight is really the insight that's sort of unique to the Buddha, and it sort of makes the um, value of the practice go beyond just really managing the mind by becoming more skillful and less unskillful. Right, still really good, but it's the realization of where that goes when you take it to the nth degree, which is, I mean, in simple terms, it's the cessation of all craving. 
but we have to have a lot of humility. We wouldn't we don't really recognize who we are when craving isn't driving the show, right? Because everything we do is generally an expression of craving. So when craving's out of the picture, when that drops away and it's just activity without a craver, without a doer, that's what we're, we've been talking about. And let me use the, uh, we'll spend a couple weeks on this but I uh, want to start passing these around. You can divide up the pile and spread it out so it goes faster too. So, uh, and I'll just start talking. And for the people who are listening live, um, I'm just passing out the uh, traditional Tibetan depiction of the Wheel of Life. But, and I sent out some links in the email earlier today where you can see this. But this depiction, this way of artistically teaching dependent origination, it started even before this particular Tibetan version. It's just that a lot of the um, sort of traditional teachings in northern India especially were wiped out um, in India uh, about a thousand years ago. So but one of the strands of early Buddhism, they came up with this way of depicting these teachings. And so every monastery would have it painted on the wall so you'd see it when you'd walk in. And it was something like this Tibetan version that you're looking at right now. So I'm going to kind of walk us through it and it will we'll spend a couple of weeks kind of going through the the different uh, parts of this. So the beast, <laughs> don't you like it? <laughs> so this is just ordinary life, but the reason it's depicted as this fierce beast is that, remember that first insight of impermanence, of change, right? It never stops. There's no, in this existence of a mind and body. And that's what the five skulls at the top of the beast head, the five aggregates. So if you don't know, we actually cover it in one of the Buddhist studies courses. But the five aggregates is a short version of that is just mind and body. So what this is, is body, the sensitivity of the body, five physical senses, and the sensitivity of the mind or the activity of the mind. And here, so the body is one of those skulls, and then the Buddha talks about the mind as four aspects. There's feeling, the pleasantness, unpleasantness, there's perception, how the mind recognizes stuff. There's mental uh, sankara or uh, mental formations, mental constructions, kind of a catch-all category and consciousness. But it's just mind. So mind and body is this fierce beast because it always in, is in motion, right? There's any mind that is identified with the activity of the mind and body, right? Dependent on the activity of the mind and body will always be emotion, always be unsettled, will never be kind of safe. And we kind of know that. 
you know, even if you've had a life of a lot of good fortune, you're never out of the woods. You're never completely safe. It never because it never stops. So even if you get yourself into a really, really, really good place, it's not like life stops then, and you're like permanently in that good spot. You you know you you're in bed and it's like so nice, but it doesn't stop. Eventually you have to get up. Or you eat and you feel just nicely full, but it changes, right? And then you get hungry again, or you got to poop. So things keep moving. We never get perfect safety, and that's why there's the beast. And then in the upper right, you see the Buddha outside of the wheel, right? No longer caught, and we'll talk about that later. And he's pointing to the moon, which is the rabbit and the other corner, the upper left corner. The moon represents the coolness, freedom of letting go, the freedom of Nibbana, the freedom of renunciation, the freedom of non-attachment. So there's the wheel when the mind is identified with the mind and body, with the activity of the mind and body, taking personally the activity of the mind and body. So... um, Now let's just, tonight, because we have 15 minutes, we'll just do the outer ring, which are the 12 links of dependent co-arising. And remember, the Buddha is just, this is his explanation, how it is that it seems like there's a suffering being here when it's actually a natural process. So he's painting a picture of a natural process that can give the appearance of me suffering, me being confused, me being upset, me being anxious or whatever. And more than like memorizing the 12 links is to kind of really get that sense of natural process, the interdependent, that phrase that Tim brought up early in the evening, you know, when there's this, there's that. When this arises, that arises. When there's not this, there's not going to be that. When this goes away, this will go away. Right? So it's like the sense of me suffering. When there's craving, there's a sense of me suffering. When there's no craving, there's no sense of me suffering. When craving is there, there's a suffering being. When craving isn't there... Right, so just to kind of see that this uh, sort of uh, arises together, I think it was Andy Olensky says like these twelve things or these different aspects of the mind or the sort of process of being, they're like leaning on each other or they're dependent on each other. And you know, sometimes the Buddha talked about this not in terms of these twelve things. Sometimes he'd use a fewer number. So you'll see that some of these things are overlap, and I'll kind of talk about them in groups. So let's start with ignorance, and it's depicted by someone who doesn't see well, sort of just close to the mouth of the beast, a little bit to the right. You see the person ignorant. So now it's ho- always hard to talk about any one of these Um, links without talking about how it came to be, right? So it's like, because it's a co-arising. 
right? So why are we? Why do we have distorted perception? Why do we think things are permanent when they're impermanent, or personal when they're impersonal, or why do I think something is ultimately satisfactory when ultimately it isn't satisfying me or anybody? Or why do I think something is beautiful when it's not beautiful? It's just what it is. Right, so these are the, some of you recognize, this is another one of those lists, the four distortions of perception. It's a nice way of thinking about ignorance. Thinking things are permanent when they're impermanent. Thinking things are self when they're not self, impersonal. Thinking things are satisfactory when they're not really satisfying anybody in any lasting or meaningful way. And thinking something's beautiful that's not beautiful. But that doesn't mean it's ugly. It's like when you think something's beautiful, like, oh yeah, my cat at home, it's really beautiful. You know? But the cat actually isn't beautiful. It's just what it is. Right? Weak the mind constructs the idea the cat's beautiful. Snow is beautiful. No, snow's not beautiful. <laughs> or whatever. And so, like I mentioned, to before we go on, you know, ignorance is there because of the reverberations of suffering. So just quickly, we'll glance back to the counterclockwise. You see the person carrying another person on its back? That's because this person is dead, the person on the back. So that's death. And the picture before that is birth. And the picture before that is someone pregnant, right? So this is like normal birth and death, right? So suffering's talked about in different ways. There's sort of the big kind of suffering, like birth, aging, sickness, and death. And then there's the more frequent kind of suffering, like every time there's liking and not liking in my mind, that's stressful. And then there's the most subtle kind of suffering, which is just the attachment to the five aggregates of body and mind, the personalizing or feeling like I can get satisfaction from the mind and body, expecting my experience of my experiences of the mind and body to deliver satisfaction to me. We always this is like endemic in the mind. Yeah, this isn't this isn't comfortable. But I'll do this. I'll move my body. No, that's not it. Let me do this. Oh, but this is just bad. But soon I'll be home and I'll have some soup. You know, and I'll watch this. So we're always looking for like thoughts, physical experiences to be satisfied. We're always looking to the mind and body, the five aggregates for satisfaction. Right? So those are the kinds of dukkha. And because of the impression dukkha, suffering, leaves on our heart, we're disoriented. We're ignorant. Right? And there's a kind of restlessness which brings us to the next. You see a potter making pots as we're going now clockwise. So it's sort of like the two o'clock 
position there, mental formations. Uh, <clears throat> one person translates this, I think, Santikaro in the book uh, Under the Bodhi Tree, and Buddha Dasa, who he's translating that book for, uses concocting here, right? So there's, with the ignorance, there's a restlessness like, yeah, life hasn't delivered satisfaction, but this moment, this life, whatever, we're talking moment to moment, life to life, this time it will be different. This time, So there's like an expectation, there's a unfinished business in that sankara. Often, uh, sometimes, well, part of its meaning is like intention. Motivation, intention, doing, concocting, right? And that sets in motion, right? So that's setting in motion this life, this moment. So whether you're talking about lifetime to lifetime or moment to moment, because of the unfinished business, ignorance, and that restless mental formations, we sort of have another mind moment. And there's consciousness, and there's sensitivity. We have a mind and body that's sensitive in these six ways, sensitive to mental activity. And then that's several of those. So I know this isn't that clear. but So you go from the potter, which is into constructing and concocting, and then that sets in motion our life, a moment of our life, a moment in our life where we have consciousness. The one underneath that, there's a, a boat and a person in a boat, if you can't make it out, right? So that's the mind and body. And the mind is sort of the leader because the guy in the boat, he's got the rudder in his hand. And the body is sort of like a beast of burden. Sort of makes sense, doesn't it? Like, you know, the body has to deal with all the stuff the mind gets gets it into. And then the house with the six doors, those are the six ways we're sensitive. So this is where you could sort of group some of those things. Like, because that's just the sensitivity of the mind and body. And then where you see the couple kissing, right? That's called contact. Because we have this moment of sensitivity, we have a mind and body that's sensitive, we're going to have contact. Unending contact. I mean, that's like a good definition of what it is to be a human being. All day long, sense impingement. Pleasant senses, unpleasant senses, through the eye, through the ear, through touch, through thought, through emotion. Never ending. One of the things we see on retreat, one of the reasons we really like samadhi, deeper states of concentration, is the mind is retreating somewhat, and if it's a really deep set, to a large degree, from sense impingement. And the bliss that people feel when they're in a deeper, more concentrated state of meditation, it's the bliss of being secluded from sense impingement. The ears still work, but the mind isn't paying attention to all those sounds. The eyes still work, but the mind isn't paying attention to the sights. Thinking mind still thinks, but the mind isn't paying attention to thoughts. And so they quiet down. And the mind isn't feeling the body sensations. The skin still, you know, the, the neurons and 
nervous system still works, but the mind isn't paying attention. So it feels so free from the oppressiveness of contact. This is another thing we don't realize is oppressive. But that's why people go to the country, you know, to the wilderness, or want to go in our bed and put the sheet over us and shut the lights off. Right? If you look at what we like to do, it's like we do like to retreat from sense impingement. We do like to simplify, at least in moments, for time. So, because of the unfinished business of ignorance, right, we end up with another moment of a sensitive mind and body. And then that inevitably leads to contact. And, and whenever there's contact, the mind's going to understand that contact as being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. That's the feeling. That's the arrow in the guy's head, right? So kind of a graphic image, like, ouch! But it's not always painful, right? Some experiences are very pleasant. So because of contact, sensitivity of the mind and body, having an experience, the mind's going to have a feeling. And because of feeling, if there's no wisdom, the mind's going to react to feeling. That's the liking and disliking. And so that picture there is somebody who's thirsty drinking. So thirst, that's actually the word tana means the literal translation of tana is thirst or thirsting. Often we translate it as craving. And then when we act on the thirst, that's grasping. That's the next one where the person's grabbing the fruit. Now we're creating karma because it's one thing to have a pleasant feeling and it's the next thing to like the pleasant feeling. Because like, now I'm a human being, that's me, who really likes this. And now I'm acting on the liking. So I'm actually acting out my craving. That's grasping. And now I've become, that's the pregnant person, I've become somebody who acted on craving. That means there's karma. I've laid down an impression, I'm the person who acted out my liking or my not liking. So I'm a person. And there are consequences to that. And the consequence is birth, aging, and death. Now don't think about this as a whole life, although you can, but it's more useful like the next moment we take birth as the person who just acted out our liking or not liking. Does that make sense? And then that's disorienting. Acting out, being the person who acted out, right? Because I'm, I'm trapped in the identification with the mind and body. I'm not understanding everything as an impersonal, natural process. It's like I'm invested in the mind and body and I'm trying to suck some nutrition out of my mind-body experience. I want the somebody, me, to be satisfied by my life, which the Buddha might say is never going to happen. There's never going to be a somebody who's satisfied by their mind-body experience. I mean, momentarily, clearly, we do feel some satisfaction and some dissatisfaction over and over again. But none of that is lasting. The dissatisfaction isn't lasting 
Satisfaction isn't lasting. It just keeps changing, which is a more subtle kind of unsatisfactoriness. That we can never get satisfied being identified with the mind and body as a place to find happiness, to get happiness. So that's disorienting, that's the ignorance, and the unsettledness leads to the next moment of mind, body, sensitivity. Inevitably there will be contact, that will contact will be whatever it is, pleasant or unpleasant, right? If there's not a lot of wisdom in that moment, with that experience of contact and feeling, then something gets set in motion. Craving to get rid of the painful thing, craving to hold on to the pleasant thing, acting on that craving, becoming the person who has the impression, the mind that did act on that craving, and then the repercussions of that identification with the mind and body. Trying to get something from the mind and body that the mind and body can't deliver. And the disorientation and the unfinished business and the more concocting to the next moment. And on and on. And the right question to ask now as we're out of time is like, well, how do you get out of this? (laughs) I've been in the mouth of the beast long enough, as the Buddha says, We've been spinning in these cycles long enough to be disenchanted. So there are a couple places, but the primary place we get interested, because in a moment of life, we can't really do anything about being sensitive, we can't really do anything about contact, and we can't actually do anything about whether that contact is pleasant or unpleasant. But we can practice not being confused by the pleasantness and unpleasantness and neutrality of experience. So that's a good place, and we'll go into this more and and pull out some of the other details of this. Um, It's really more than just dependent co-arising that's depicted in this, this drawing, and we'll go into it in more depth. But really get interested in feeling and see what is it to have a wise relationship with feeling, like feeling is just a natural process. Sometimes it's a pleasant feeling, sometimes contact, whatever I'm aware of is unpleasant, sometimes it's neutral, it's not clear whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. But feeling just keeps coming and going. Why make a big deal out of a pleasant feeling or a big deal out of an unpleasant feeling? Right? It's like really radical because an ordinary human being, our minds is totally oriented around feeling. So to just start getting interested this week, and this will be the topic for the small groups next Monday, it's like what have you learned about relating to feeling? So just get really interested. Like, So just be ready with a simple question. Well, what does this feel like? So there's this experience is happening, contact. Right? You're sensitive. You're a human being with a mind and body that's sensitive. Some predominant experiences happen. Immediately, unavoidably, you can't do anything about it, you sense that that's a pleasant or a neutral or an unpleasant experience. And then see if you can just get interested in that moment. Okay, so what is it? Oh, it's unpleasant. Okay, so what's it, what do I do with this unpleasantness? What's, learn, like, well, I'm going to get rid of it. 
well, you'll see that that's stressful. To, to be the person who has to get rid of unpleasantness is stressful. So when it's not an unpleasant feeling that's going to kill you, then get interested in looking at the unpleasantness without becoming the person who has to do anything about the unpleasantness. So there's awareness of the unpleasantness, and that's it. Intimacy with the unpleasantness, openness, relaxation with the unpleasantness. And of course, as you can imagine, it's better when it's not too pleasant or too unpleasant. Because when it gets really intensely pleasant, it's really hard to practice. We just get driven to grasp. And when it's really strongly unpleasant, we just get driven to run and hide and get rid of. So wishing you all a good week of practice. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.